Is the world enough? Have you ever thought about how events in the real world and other movies could affect and work their way into some of our favorite spy movies? Well, think about that for a minute, because that's what we're going to explore today on Spy Movie Navigator. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzotto with SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. This topic is too big to cover in one podcast. Therefore, we're dividing it into multiple parts. In this first part, we'll talk about how real-world events and other movies could affect and work their way into spy movies through 1969's release of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Then, in continuing podcasts, we'll cover some spy movies from 1971 onward. Since we're going to start mostly with the Bond films here, and the first one we're going to take a look at is going to be Dr. No, I wanted to give you a little quote from Barbara Broccoli, who's the one of the co-producers of all of the Bond films now from Ian Productions. This is from a book called The Art of Bond by Laurent Buzaro. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Stop a second. Okay, I looked all over the place to try to find something where I could hear that guy's name pr- pronounced. It's French, okay. and I'm not good at that. How did you come up with that? Yeah, well, I know. You looked, I looked. My wife used to teach French, and so I said, hey, how do you pronounce this name? Because sometimes, uh, in the past, I have mispronounced a name. I mean... <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, and, and if we do, you just call us out on it, everybody out there, and, and we'll try to fix it the next time around. Yeah, so but, our apologies to Laurent if we did mispronounce, Yeah, but uh, we'll go but forward. We, we are looking, and we're searching, and we're trying to find it. So here we go. So let's get back to the book, The Art of Bond. It's a great book. And in this particular section, Barbara Broccoli's talking about how they go about writing the scripts and looking at what's going on in the world and so on. So here she says, we also talk about how we can make the story relevant. These are not political films, but we want them to feel contemporary to audiences. We look at current events and ask, what are the big issues and problems in the world? What are we frightened of? So again, that's a quote from Barbara Broccoli. So you could see how Ian Production brilliantly looks at what's going on in the real world to see how they affect the films. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The very first thing that made its way from the world into the films, and of course into the books, is the name James Bond. Ian Fleming got the name James Bond from one of his favorite books, Birds of the West Indies, by James Bond. We're going to start with Dr. No, since that was the first Ian production, James Bond 007 film. Now, we have another whole podcast just on Dr. No, if you want to take a listen to that. So, Dr. No was written in 1957 by Ian Fleming, published in 1958, which was his sixth James Bond novel. Of course, the movie Dr. No is Ian Productions' first Bond film, and that came out in 1962. That was a good year. That's the year I was born. Yeah, that's nice. So, here is the first instance of the real world affecting this spy movie. By 1962, both the Soviet Union and the USA were launching astronauts into space. So they were ahead of the theme in the novel where the U.S. was launching test missiles only. In the novel, Dr. No says he's working with the Russians to disrupt American test missiles. In the movie, he is disrupting American space flights. 
Also in the movie, both the East and the West have rejected Dr. No's services. And so he's a member of Spectre. Spectre. Of course, Spectre is special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, and extortion. Yeah. And he's not working with the Russians. The Cold War between Russia, basically the really the Soviet Union at the time, and the U.S. in real life was heating up by the time this movie came out. So here, the movie was influenced definitely by real-world happenings. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was front and center for many people you know, with the Cold War, with what's going on with Russia and the U.S. Absolutely. And in a subtle nod to life happening, the painting of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco de Goya was stolen on August 21st, 1961, from the National Gallery in London. It was still missing when Eon Productions was filming Dr. No. So in Dr. No, when Bond is in Dr. No's lair, he walks through the lair, and he's, right as he's about to go up these steps, he stops and he looks at a painting on an easel, and it's the Duke of Wellington. I mean, so if you're, if you're watching Dr. No and don't realize the painting he stops to look at is this real-life stolen Duke of Wellington, you just think Bond finds that painting interesting. Once you know the real-life incident, then this adds a brilliant glow to the scene where the writers for Eon Productions were indeed very clever and very inventive. And every time you watch that movie going forward, you're going to notice it and go, oh, that's that picture. Now, the real painting was eventually recovered and now hangs back in the National Gallery in London. It's in Gallery A. Yeah, um, we saw it there when we, we went to visit uh, also Gallery 24, which is uh, Inspector, the movie Spectre. Where Bond meets the new Q. Yeah, there you, you can sit on the bench and look yeah. up and 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 kind of see where where they look. They've changed the painting; it's not the same painting as they were looking at in the movie. But you they can moved sit, it a little bit. Yeah, they moved it a little bit. But you can yeah. sit in that bench and yeah. and kind of feel like you're you know either Daniel or Ben sitting there getting ready to do yeah. their scene. Yeah, we've got a picture of us doing that. <laughs> anyway, check out Gallery A if you want to see the. Duke of Wellington hanging back in the National Gallery. So a real piece of history sitting there in the middle of a Dr. No film. Now we're going to take a quick look at From Russia with Love, 1963. So this was released in 1963 by Ian Productions as their second James Bond film. And this was Ian Fleming's fifth James Bond novel published in 1957, the year the Soviets launched Sputnik, the first man-made satellite, and was heavily influenced by the times and the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviets. That was at an all-time high. Remember, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the showdown between Russia and the U.S., was in October 1962, the year Ian was filming From Russia with Love. So once again, Ian Productions, brilliant in their release of From Russia with Love. The timing could not have been more perfect. Here's another idea. Check out this book for your eyes only, Ian Fleming plus James Bond by Ben McIntyre. It's a great book. Here, he tells of the attempt to murder Bond on the Orient Express by Smirsch was really based on a U.S. naval attaché in Romania, Eugene Karp, who was more than likely trying to escape from Russian agents. He boarded the real Orient Express in Bucharest in February 1950 
and his body was found in a railway tunnel near Salzburg, Austria. It was never proven the Soviet assassins did it, but it was highly probable. And uh, my wife and I had actually been on the Orient Express train once, but it was before I had seen this movie. And uh, so it was like, I really want to get back on that train again now after watching this. Yeah. It's a beautiful train. I guess it still runs, right? It, yeah, it's, it's still it's, running, but it's. I, I think they've lessened the, yeah, they, the routes. Yeah, they've it's, lessened the routes, yeah. and we, we actually were diverted because of some fire in a tunnel or something, but it's a gorgeous train. Yeah. Again, just finishing up from Russia with love and how real-world events impact this, even Smirsh is from the Russian Smirtshipionium. Easy for you <laughs> to say, Dan. Or however you pronounce that. Which, I, I'll course, just say death to spies, which death is what that spies. means. And we'll see this again in The Living Daylights as well. All right, let's move to Goldfinger, which was released in 1964 by Ian Productions. It was their third James Bond film, then it was based on Ian Fleming's seventh novel of the same name, which was published in 1959. Now, in the pre-title sequence of the movie, which wasn't written in the novel, James Bond emerges from, a, from the water in a wetsuit, and he had set some explosives, and then he removes this wetsuit to reveal a perfectly neat, crisp, white dinner jacket. Yeah, the, the wetsuit's really a dry suit, but... It looks like a wetsuit, but it, it keeps you dry. It keeps you dry. But yeah, so he takes it off and just resplendently pressed white white dinner jacket, and you're thinking, what's the chance of that really happening? Bow tie, or, I mean, everything. was it even possible for that to happen? So, like Tom said, I mean, could this kind of stuff really happen in real life? It looked ridiculous in the movie, right? You're thinking, but right, way cool. It's cool, very cool, and he looked great. But come on, really? Well. Let's talk to MI6 about a similar World War II operation. So watch this. We read an article by this guy, David Harrison, that was published in April 2010 in The Telegraph. And he reveals about this guy, Jeremy Duns. He was a British writer. He was doing research for a new book. And he found out that a Dutch spy used a very similar technique infiltrate a German-occupied mansion in the Netherlands in World War II. So this actually really happened. From the water, he emerges in a wetsuit, uh, again, a dry suit. Underneath this specially designed wetsuit, he wore evening wear. You know, they, they actually took some time to get that design right so that he could come out of the water and have that soupy right. Yeah, and actually in real life, he had two other frogmen with him to help him get out of the thing because it was a specially designed thing. But You mean it wasn't quite as smooth as what uh, what happens when Bond gets out exactly, of Not exactly, but here it is really, really happening, right? So here he has all this evening wear on, and so it would look like he belonged, and he could slip past the guards and into the party, and he was supposed to get a couple of his comrades out of there that were captured by the Germans and were in the mansion. So this was his mission. This Jeremy Duns thinks that a Brit screenwriter, this guy Paul Dane, spelled D-E-H-N, who was called in to polish up the Goldfinger script, actually knew about this World War II incident because he was a former intelligence officer in World War II. 
ha, ha. How about that? So the original script didn't have this scene. And as Tom said, it wasn't in the original novel either. So he feels it's too much of a coincidence that this scene would have been written into the screenplay by Paul Dane, who most certainly was aware of this World War II operation. True, real-life incident working their way smack dab right in the middle, of, right in the beginning there of Goldfinger, the movie. Yeah, now one more point on this, Dan. Bond gets out of the wetsuit, and then he tucks, his, he tucks the flower into the lapel of the, yeah, the, of carnation the white dinner jacket. Yeah, whatever into it is. the white dinner jacket. Now, Peter Talazar, I'm sorry, Peter Tazalar, the Dutch spy that we've been talking about, he actually had cognac poured all over yes. him. Yes. So that he was trying to make it look like he was a drunk reveler, and he used that as his ruse to get past the guards, and yeah. it worked. Yeah, he could fit in. It's perfect. This really happened. So when Bond takes off that wetsuit and he's got that uh, nice dinner jacket underneath, yeah, it really happened in real life. It's possible. Yeah. So let's move forward into the film, and Bond gets captured by Goldfinger's henchmen. There's you know right after that great car chase, and he finds himself strapped to a metal table. Goldfinger is going to demonstrate his new toy on him, a laser beam. Here in the film, the laser beam is directed at the base of the table, and it's guided to rise up between Bond's legs, into his crotch, and eventually kill him. In the book by Fleming, published in 1959, there were no lasers yet, and so this device was really a table saw. Yeah, I mean, the laser wasn't invented until 1960. The first working laser actually was built, we looked it up, May 16th, 1960, by Theodore Maiman at Hughes Research Laboratories, and it was based on all this theoretical work that had already been done by Charles Hart Towns and Arthur Leonard Shallow. So here, here the term laser, I, I always have to look this up because I never could remember what laser <laughs> stands for. But it's an acronym for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. That's, Such an easy to I like laser better. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? So, yeah. So, here it is, laser. So, that's where it comes from. Again, Ian Productions was brilliant at integrating a real-life happening, the invention of the laser, into this film, which was being shot in 1963 for release in 1964. And at the time, this was a very high-tech scene in Goldfinger. Everybody knows this scene in Goldfinger. We cannot think of another film of any kind using a laser before Goldfinger. So here is another first for Ian Productions. Taking the real world and running with it. Yeah. This scene is famous the world over for the laser and for the dialogue. Yeah, you've got Bond going, you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger says the famous line, No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> it's great. Who doesn't know that line? All right, so let's move to the fourth Ian Productions James Bond 007 movie, Thunderball. This was Ian Fleming's ninth James Bond novel, which was published in 1961, and the movie opened in 1965. Thunderball probably would have been the first movie produced, but there were some copyright issues that were delayed in settlement. Kevin McClory and Ian Fleming had worked on a script that had never made it to production. Fleming used part of it for Thunderball, the book, and eventually a settlement was reached. 
actually Thunderball was the only early Ian production movie where the producers, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, are not listed as the producers. Here they became the executive producers, which is really a lesser status. And McClory was listed as the producer. Amazing how lawsuits can help with things like that, right? Yeah. And McClory, he also got the rights to do his own film, his own James Bond film, based on his Thunderball contributions. And he eventually did, as we all know, Never Say Never Again, which is basically the same story as Thunderball. Yeah, and they paid Sean Connery just a boatload of money for that. That to, to, to do that movie. Yeah. But we digress. In Thunderball, Spectre is added again. So we get away from the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, and we have this other entity now that becomes the enemy again. Remember in Dr. No, we were introduced to Spectre. Even though the, the, the guts of the story is not the Soviet Union versus the U.S., in real life, in 1961, when the novel was published, we had lots of atomic bombs in the world. And there was a big arms race between the Soviet Union and the U.S. So the concept of atomic weapons, that thought was on everybody's mind. So, again, the reaching out to what's happening in the real world with a very timely movie with Thunderball and the concept of atomic weapons being stolen. The basis of the story is based in real life. People were worried about a nuclear war and atomic weapons. Here, two atomic weapons are hijacked by Spectre, who threatened to destroy a major city, either in the U.S. or the United Kingdom. So even though the Eon Productions did not make this their very first Bond film, in 1965, the world was very aware of the threat from the major powers building up supplies of nuclear weapons, so the topic was hot. Another thing was the Skyhook. In the movie, the Skyhook comes and recovers Bond and Domino at the end of the film. Now, there's actually a real-life device developed by Robert Fulton for the CIA in the 1950s. By letting up a line from the ground with a self-inflating balloon, a specially equipped plane can fly by and scoop up the line and the one or two personnel it was designed to retrieve. It's really cool. I mean, it's a real-life gadget at the time used in the film. Yeah. That's another great incident of, hey, this is what's really happening in the world. We have this device. Let's use it. And they did. Yeah, it wasn't a made-for-movie gadget. Yeah, it actually worked. Continuing with Thunderball, in 1956, again, true life, a Soviet cruiser came to Britain with Nikita Khrushchev on a state visit to Britain. He was the former premier of the Soviet Union. It was also in 1956 where Khrushchev said, we will bury you while addressing Western ambassadors at a reception at a Polish embassy in Moscow on November 18, 1956. So Soviet-Western relationships were not good. So on this visit to Britain, Britain wanted to get a look at this new Soviet ship. Some reports said they kind of wanted to look at, at the ship for mine-laying hatches or maybe sonar equipment. And other reports, like from Peter Wright's book, Spycatcher, Britain's naval intelligence wanted kind of information on the potential new propeller system this ship may have had. So what did MI6 do? They sent a scuba diver down. Actually, two were reported as being sent down. And one was a great diver, this Lionel Crab. Wait, Dan, so MI6 
was going to send a scuba diver down to look at the ship that brought Khrushchev yeah. into this meeting. Yeah, they actually that, did. That, that takes some guts. I mean, you talk about secret spy stuff. Secret spy stuff really happening and dangerous, as we'll see in a moment. Crab never returned from this mission, and a headless, handless body was found 14 months later, dressed in the scuba gear he had worn on that day, April 15, 1956. MI6 kind of covered up the mission, saying Crab was lost in some underwater exercise or something. A lot of theories floated about, one being that the Soviet sentries were stationed underwater to guard the ship, and they caught Crab, cut his air hose, and brought him aboard, and he later died. Other theories say he was shot underwater by a, a Soviet sniper. In real life, this really happened. They're sending down scuba divers to check out a Soviet ship in British waters. Now, let's look at Thunderball. You'll remember in Thunderball, Bond is sent down to inspect the hull of the Disco Volante, Largo, the villain's boat. Bond is discovered also by Largo's frogman, as Bond was taking photos of the hull to determine if there were any underwater hatches. Bond, more lucky than Crab, escapes. The photos showed an underwater hatch, which leads Bond to think Largo's entire operation the theft of the plane carrying the nuclear missiles and so on might be underwater, including the plane itself that was hijacked. Is there a connection between the crab event and these scenes in Thunderball? Well, the MI6 officer in charge of the Lionel Crab underwater deployment and mission was Nicholas Elliott, a friend of Fleming's. In 1958, there was a movie called Silent Enemy, and this was based on a true story. Two British battleships are sunk in Alexandria by explosives set under their hulls. The explosives in real life were being set by Italian scuba divers, and they were launched from a ship using what they called underwater chariots, which in Thunderball and other spy movies to come were the underwater sleds used to transport the bombs to get divers to certain locations underwater, etc., where they come out of a hull of a ship Nobody can see them. They're totally undetected. They're under the, under the water. Now, in real life, they were using these underwater chariots to bring frogmen to the British ships, where they would attach torpedoes and mines. The British had to figure this out and stop it. And here, Lionel Crabb... Who we just mentioned a minute ago. Yeah, he was in charge of the operation to infiltrate the en enemy ship, to destroy their capabilities of continuing to blow up the British ships. So in this movie we see real-life events. Of course, we see in The Spy Who Loved Me, Stromberg, who was the villains, his ship, the Lipperus, it has an underwater bow hatches that capture the Soviet and U.S. submarines with the nuclear weapons aboard. So here we have real-life events from the 1958 film Silent Enemy and their underwater chariots being used seven years later by Thunderball with the underwater sleds and so on. So you have a real-life event making the entire Silent Enemy movie, taking those real-life events and some of the tools they use in that movie ahead seven years later and use, being used in Thunderball. Yeah, now they're a lot sleeker. Those sleds are a lot sleeker in Thunderball seven years later. Sure. But both seem to be effective. Yeah, because they probably used the real stuff that they used in the war because they actually did this. So right. the 1958 film, those underwater sleds were probably 
chariots were based on what they actually use in World War II, which, okay, they're not going to be as slick as 1965 but or a bond production, but all based on real stuff. And they worked. Yeah. In the same movie, Silent Enemy, there's a great underwater battle of frogmen, cutting, breathing hoses, and more, just like in Thunderball and more spy movies to come. The Thunderball underwater scenes filmed in the Bahamas set the standard for future underwater battles. And the potential connections to real-life events from World War II makes the Thunderball underwater hull investigations, the underwater battles with frogmen, and the underwater sleds even more grounded in reality. Yeah, you have to think about what those frogmen were dealing with. And, I mean, you're going down there, you don't know, you've got an enemy in the dark, just comes after you and says, eh, let's take care of your Yeah, host. and the filming of it was tremendous in Thunderball. It was just fabulous. They had this guy, Lamar Boren? Yeah. Boren, right? Yeah. And he was, like, famous for underwater scenes. Yeah, and well, you've seen a lot of his, his work. If you've seen an underwater scene on movies or TV, it's a lot of times it's his work. Yeah, and the, and then, of course, Ian Productions got him for this this stuff. And, again, this set the standard. This was great stuff. Hey, Dan, one thing we forgot to talk about in, in Thunderball that was from real life that I really loved was that jetpack thing. Oh, in, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, pre-title yeah. sequence. Yes, yes. I mean, that thing really existed. They were That thing was in development. Yes. And from that movie forward, I always wanted one. Living in Chicago out in the suburbs, I always <laughs> I hated taking the train in. I would have loved to have just gotten that jetpack on yeah. and, and flown over there. Now, it it had a very short flight lifespan. I mean, it couldn't it couldn't go very far. No, I think it was seconds. Yeah, that they could fly. Yeah, exactly. But it actually really worked. I think it was called the Bell Rocket Belt. Yeah, or it was something, the Bell Rocket Belt. Technically, yeah. But they used it in the film, and there were they not too many people can actually fly the damn. You mean thing. they didn't teach Sean how to do it? No, Sean didn't actually do it. But they used this guy Bill Suter. Yeah. They flew a couple guys in, I think, to, that could fly. Yeah, there were thing. two there were only two people that could fly it. I don't know if there were only two, but they flew yeah. two in. And one of them is this guy Bill Suter, and they said, "Hey, go go fly the thing. We're going to shoot this and we'll pretend it's Bond." And uh, they wanted to do it without the helmet though, and he said, uh, "No. <laughs> I'm not doing this without the <laughs> Which helmet." Which is why you see Sean Connery Put yeah. the helmet on there at the end, right? Or, well, right actually, gets in there. and the thing that cracks me up is if you're up that high in yeah. that thing and it and it, it peters out on you, the helmet's not going to make much difference. Yeah, right. You're you're probably going to die. Yeah. But, but anyway, that that's the little story behind that. And it's, it's again, another real another, thing working its way into Grounded the in reality, and yeah. it, they brought it forward in the movie, and it was, it was really cool. Yeah. Now, Dan, there was one more thing in Thunderball that, I mean, this podcast is about things that existed in real life that made it into the movies. Yeah. This next one is kind of a little op, kind of opposite of that, right? This is something that existed in the movie that people wanted to make. And it was about that, that thing, the, the breather thing that bond puts in yeah. when he goes swimming. Right. He got that from Q. Yeah. The rebreather. That's of course, everybody knows that he's caught in the, the swimming pool with the sharks and everything. And, and, He's trapped. They got the cover on the pool. He couldn't get up and whatever, couldn't get out. And so he takes out his rebreather that Q made for him. That's another thing I want. Yeah. That's kind of neat, right? Yeah. So he's underwater and he's able to breathe with this little thing. It kind of looks like it fits in a cigar tube or something, you know. And then he takes it out and boom, he's underwater breathing. Well, the, the British military saw that and they kind of liked it. They said, wow, how will they, they called... The in production guys. I, I mean, want one. It was Peter Lamont, I think. And they, he said, how how long 
can you breathe underwater with that with device that you had in the in the movie? And, and Peter Lamont said, as long as you could hold your breath. <laughs> it's like, That's good. He's like, what? He's like, it's a prop, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was a prop. And But the military is like, oh, man, that was such a cool device. We could use that in real life. So here's an opposite, right? It's, it's a, a device in the film that the military actually wanted to bring out to real life. I but, wonder how many tax dollars were spent trying to build one of they, those things. But they couldn't really do it. And, and then the guy said, but the guy's underwater. Bond's underwater for three or four minutes. And, and Lamont says, yeah, it's the skill of the editors, you know, because – Movie magic, baby. Like, yeah, movie magic. And lastly on Thunderball, though the movie came out in 1965, Fleming's ninth novel was published in 1961, and it foreshadowed the threat of the Cuban Missile Crisis to the U.S. Florida cities like Miami, Cape Canaveral, and so on. Well, yeah, Key West is 90 miles from Cuba. Yes. And that's where they did License to Kill. Yes. So that's the last little bit of reality that worked its way into Thunderball. Right now we'll move on to You Only Live Twice. This was in 1967. It was based kind of on Ian Fleming's 12th novel, which was published in 1964. If you count the Four Your Eyes only collection of short stories, and it's the last novel published before his death. And it's Ian Productions' fifth James Bond 007 film, which opened in 1967. Now, the, middle, the movie really has little to do with the actual novel. I mean, here the beginning of the movie depe- depicts the death of James Bond. I love the fact that they do that at the beginning because... You know he's dead at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, Bond's dead. Yeah. First 30 seconds of the movie. Movie's over, right? But you've got the complete, with you know, the obituaries and the newspapers and everything. So he's dead, right? And there's a burial at sea for Commander Bond. And when the body sinks to the bottom of the ocean, scuba divers retrieve the body and bring it to the awaiting submarine where it's taken aboard. The wrappings open only to reveal a live James Bond who quips. Request permission to come aboard, sir. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> yeah. Request permission to come aboard, sir. And we're relieved because Bond's alive. Oh, thank goodness. The oh. movie can keep going on, right? Yeah. So we're, we're happy with this. So his, thank God. his death was fake to throw off the enemy. Of course, that means they knew who James Bond was, which is often the case, but that's another podcast. We do actually mention that in another podcast that his niece explained why his name is James Bond because... Just quickly, uh, she said people would be confused, she thought, because his real name was going to be James Secretin. And James Bond to his friends and comrades in in MI6, but his street name was going to be James Secretin. So they thought, "Mm, that's going to get confusing in the novels. And so they say, he's Bond. He's Bond. (laughs) Yep. All right. So now this whole thing about them faking Bond's death, right? I mean, that's. It's grounded in reality here. The fake death of spies is definitely grounded in reality. Google Arkady Babchenko. He faked his own death because he was very critical of Vladimir Putin, and he was certain that he would be killed by the KGB. Yeah, you don't you don't want to be railing against Putin. Yeah, they really are intolerant of that kind of stuff. Yep. In a huge real life situation in World War II, Operation Mincemeat. Google it. 
This is a fabulous, fantastic, real-life story. The Allies floated the body of a dead man with fake papers, identifying him as a captain who the Germans had been tracking, with papers indicating an invasion of Sardinia, Italy, and Greece instead of Sicily to mislead the Germans. Some stories say that the fictitious name of the dead man was Captain William Martin, while other reports say the Germans were aware of the supposed dead man and felt he really knew something. So regardless, the deception worked, and the source of the plan came from Rear Admiral John Godfrey and his assistant, Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming. I wonder where, where, where did Fleming get the idea then for killing how off did, Bond like how this? How did that work its way into the film? I, now that Operation Mincemeat, there, yep. there's actually two really cool things here, right? One, there's a if you go to Google and just do a, a search for um, Operation Mincemeat documentary, there's a fifty-something minute documentary on this that's really good that explains it. Um, and it, you know, you were telling me about this and, and I was like, I got to learn more about this. So I, I spent about three and a half hours going through <laughs> looking up these different things. And okay. there's even a movie, the man who never was, Yes, which is a great representation of this telling that story of operation mincemeat and j- just the little intricacies they had to do to fake these guys out. Yeah, they had fake receipts in the briefcase, fake plans about the invasion. A love letter. And the Germans had been tracking this guy, so they knew where this guy had been going, and so the receipts matched up were where they thought he had been going anyway in England and so on, and so it was it was brilliant, and it worked. And it, it worked, thank goodness. Yeah. We all remember Henderson, who was the contact Bond meets in Japan and who has key information and he was based on Richard Hughes, who was a reporter and double agent, who actually worked for Ian Fleming at one point. During World War II. During World War II, yeah. Hughes did a lot of Bond-like things. He spent a great deal of time in Japan. Hence, it was a great place to film this movie. Google the extraordinary untold Japan story of You Only Live Twice by Damien Flanagan, uh, special to the Jap- Japan Times. It's a great story. Our next example from this movie, You Only Live Twice, is Little Nelly, the one-man autogyro that Bond flies to do the surveillance in Japan. It was a real-life invention. It was really cool. I love that little thing. Yeah. Uh, this guy, Ken Wallace, developed it, a Royal Air Force guy, in the early part of the 1960s. The one used in the movie was modified, of course, but it was a real thing. Yeah, you look at that thing going like, there's no way that's going to fly. Yeah, it, it looked Fake, but it also reminded me of the little auto gyro that was in the very first spy movie, The 39 Steps. Oh, that's right. For a brief moment, probably five seconds, you see this thing hovering looking for Annie. So check that one out, too. We have a podcast on that. And then lastly, the space race played a huge part here, too. The U.S. and Soviet Union at the time were racing each other for dominance in outer space, for advantages, achievements, and everything else. So Spectre capturing Soviet and U.S. space capsules is a natural for this movie, given the times in 1967. This is two years before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin will land on the moon on U.S. Apollo 11. So yeah. this is real stuff. Yeah, you had all of the whole talk of NASA in the, in, in the space race in the news, and so it was a very topical thing for yes. you know, for society hearing all of this stuff. Yep.
All right, so after You Only Live Twice, we then move into On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It was a, Ian Fleming's 11th novel. It was published in 1963, and it was Eon Productions' sixth James Bond 007 movie, and it came out in 1969. This was the first Bond movie without Sean Connery, and George Lazenby steps in to be Bond and to be bonded or married to Teresa DiVincenzo, or better known as Tracy, played wonderfully by Diana Rigg. She was terrific. She was terrific. Now, you and I actually, we're recording this the, the morning after, you and I actually went to a 50th anniversary showing in a movie theater. Big screen. Big screen. Presentation. It was, it was really cool to see that on a big screen because I hadn't seen that on a big screen before. Yeah, so that was cool. And and Raymond Benson was there. He did a little intro and he was selling some of his books. He was one of the continuation authors that Ian Fleming Productions authorized to write more James Bond novels. And he wrote six James Bond novels up to 2002, I think. Yeah. And he wrote three novelizations of three of the Pierce Brosnan movies because they weren't books before. And he wrote the books after the movie. So he was there too. And we talked to him a little bit. He's a cool guy. We're going to have a podcast with Raymond Benson um, coming up sometime soon, but it was great to see it on the big screen. Yeah. And especially when you get to that mountaintop laboratory, right? I mean, it's posing as an allergy clinic at Pete's glory in Schilthorn, Switzerland. And we've been there. I mean, just, Absolutely. Yeah. If you if you're gonna go to a bond site, you've got to go to this. It's place. one of the top ten bond sites in the world. Yeah. Now and we've been there. Yeah, we've been there. It's just gorgeous. Just go now. We, and we have a podcast on that where we talk about that. Now Blowfield is up there, and he's brainwashing these young women to deliver a chemical agent that will stop plants and animals from reproducing. It's going to create really create a tremendous food crisis, right? If you can't grow plants, you can't grow animals. We're going to have a problem finding food. And this setting is spectacular. It's about 10,000 feet in the air, and it's just a great place to, to, to film this thing. But so we're on this allergy thing that's going to – the girls have allergies, and they're going to spray this chemical, and that chemical is going to release and sterilize the plants and animals. So now in 1968, there was an experiment done by the U.S. Army at the Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah. And through a malfunction of the spraying nozzle, a toxic chemical was released – and almost 30 miles away, over 6,000 sheep were found dead. Yeah, I, I don't think there was a definitive connection to the agent released by the Army and the sheep's deaths, but traces, <laughs> this is, yeah, draw your own conclusions, traces of the toxic chemical were supposedly found on all the carcasses. But we have no official confirmation that yeah. was the problem. Yeah, so on Her yeah. Majesty's Secret Service, comes out in 69, year after this when they were filming it in 68 actually chemical warfare and potential devastation to life through chemicals was very much real and really kind of an ingenious plot yeah think about it if you can sterilize the food source yeah what are people going to do i mean that that was a good threat him being being beauchamp and getting his count thing (laughs) that that wasn't much of a threat yeah yeah. but this this is a real threat and based in in reality i guess no it could have happened right yeah so now at, the, at that time, the Soviet Union was ramping up chemical warfare research as well, and then we were starting to downgrade ours. Um, In the U.S. Yeah, and so, again, what, what Blofeld was thinking about was not really out of the realm of possibility. Right. And he wanted to hold that over people's heads and get money for it, yeah. not, um, not releasing it. The whole thing, the whole concept of chemical warfare, and of course, there was some of that going on even in World War One with mustard gas. And uh, But here it is, real. I mean, this is real stuff. And the Army was experimenting with it. The Soviet Union's experimenting with it. And here it is in the movie. That was really cool. On Her Majesty's Secret Service. One of our 
one of my top five Bond films. I am absolutely for me too. Thanks for listening to part one of this podcast series, how real world events and other movies could affect and work their way into spy movies. Please download and listen to part two. We'll also have additional podcasts on this subject matter in the future. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. This is Tom Pizzotto. And Dan Silvestri. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please give Spy Movie Navigator a five-star review on iTunes. It helps us do more podcasts. And keep downloading our podcasts and checking our website for the latest on spy movies. We are SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans. Spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. <laughs> <laughs>